Well, good evening. I'm Matt, I'm a pastor of City Reform. It's good to be with you. Um, we have a couple things happening that are coming together tonight. I was reminded right before the service, not only is this our final worship service of 2019, it's our final worship service of the decade. When we meet again, we'll be in the 20s. Some of you, uh, uh, many of us, when we think of the 20s, we think of the 1920s. But from now on, as of, you know, what, Wednesday, when we hear tw- the 20s, we're going to refer to what's happening in your lifetime. Pretty crazy to think about, huh? Anyway, uh, so that is something that has no relationship to the sermon, just an interesting reflection. Two other things are happening. Uh, one is we've been moving through a sermon series. We've been uh, picking passages of the Bible that correspond to parts of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So we're doing a series of sermons on, on theological themes. And uh, as we move through Christmas, we've been uh, reflecting on the identity of Jesus. And this will be uh, a couple weeks in a row now that we've spoken of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Now, there's a number of ways that we could approach it. One is that we could think very theologically about the kingly authority of Jesus, which is a good thing to do, but it's sort of ground that's been covered recently. So I wanted to go in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, Those of you who were here at the beginning of December uh, know that I had to fill in the very last minute when another pastor um, had had an injury. And uh, so I stepped in and we did a a very quick uh, uh, sermon on uh, Psalm 43, a prayer in dark places, uh, and, and a, a, a prayer in Psalm 43 that God gives to us to speak when we find ourselves in a very difficult circumstance. And as we walk through the sermon, I, I said I can envision a, a situation later where we think not just of how we relate to God, but how we relate to each other. And so today, as we look at the very end of uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, we'll be thinking about, again, this theme of uh, being in a a dark place. Um, But we'll be thinking not only about how we move towards God, but the way in which God is calling us to move towards each other. So it's sort of a, a corresponding with what we had talked about earlier in the month. I'll read the passage, and then we'll explore it together. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 22. The final, really the final words of the Apostle Paul that we have recorded in the Bible. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me 
so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. I did practice this, actually. Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill in the latest. Do your best to come before winter. Eubelus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Paul is in a dark place. Uh, As we've said before, this can be a a time of year for um, many of us uh, to to wrestle with the darkness. We wrestle physically. This is uh, the darkest time of the year. Uh, Good news, the days as of now are getting longer uh, each day, very slightly, but they're getting longer. And still we are stuck in a a cold, uh, wet, uh, dreary Pittsburgh winter, often overcast. Um, And as if that's not hard enough, there are many other challenges we face that sometimes just seem to pile on. In general, uh, the holiday season, though it can be a time of great rejoicing, can also be a hard time. Um, And for many people, it's a time to remember some of our losses, our disappointments, and perhaps these things can feel exaggerated. Paul himself was in a dark season, not because it was winter or a holiday season, but because he was in prison. Uh, uh, we've uh, read many letters from Paul at different times, um, and you find the narrative history that, that follows Paul's journey in the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. When that book ends in Acts chapter 28, we are left with Paul under house arrest in Rome, but with a very optimistic note. These things seem to be going well, and... <clears throat> Um, people are able to come in and out and see him, and uh, he's able to minister freely and unhindered, the text says. So we're left on an optimistic note. However, this letter is not optimistic, and what, what many scholars and church historians have, have thought is that uh, the house arrest that Paul was under at the end of Acts is something that perhaps he was released from, and that would make a, a possible uh, scenario where he could have done some ministry that we have in his letters, but not referred to in the book of Acts. And uh, after that, Paul may have then been uh, uh, rearrested and brought back to Rome. Now, we don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that Paul begins this letter in a very different note. It's not a note of encouragement. It's not a note of optimistically anticipating his release, but rather he speaks of coming to Rome in, in chains. He's in prison again. And what we see as we look at this letter is that uh, Paul's situation is a very difficult one. Uh, he speaks of uh, a time, he says in verse 6, the time of his departure has come. He's not leaving for a trip. He's talking about his death. Um, and the very next verse then is a, is a verse in which Paul looks backward at his life and ministry and begins to speak of it as if it's almost already in the past tense. He says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And he looks forward with hope to the promise of the resurrection of the dead and the hope of heaven. Henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. It's as if Paul's own internal vision has already moved forward in time, looking past his own death and waiting with anticipation and hope for the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. This is, throughout his letters, Paul's great hope that he returns to. The the great New Testament hope looks to the return of Jesus. And yet, it's not quite over yet. Um, From his perspective, the end seems to be near. The shadow of his own death is looming over him. And indeed, these are, this is generally regarded as being his, his last letter. Um, we don't, again, we don't know any of these things for absolute certain. Uh, but it is generally regarded as being the final words of Paul. And in, in this, in Paul's difficult circumstances, one in which um, he's been facing some really deadly opposition, we get, we get in that a window into Paul's inner life. And in how Jesus as king gives him hope in the midst of these circumstances. He's facing difficult things. He speaks of a man named Alexander the coppersmith who did him great harm. We wish we had more backstory here. We really don't have any. We don't know who Alexander was or how he harmed him. But we do know of some scenarios where Paul's preaching so affected the people in a region that they stopped buying as many of the small metal idols that they would have bought otherwise. So there's at least another occasion where the metal workers got angry at Paul because his his preaching was hurting their business. And maybe that's what happened with Alexander the coppersmith. But it appears it led to a scenario where Paul had to again give a defense, perhaps for his life, but a public defense Uh, from some sort of political entity. He speaks of a scenario where he says in verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And yet Paul responds with uh, mercy and grace, may it not be charged against them. He prays for those who didn't stand with him. Imagine, this is a pretty difficult scenario. It's not exactly like anything any of us are facing. But we can say, here's a guy in a tough, tough situation. He's in, he's in prison. There's very, the only person with him is Luke. Some people have actually deserted him. He speaks of Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted him. Others, like Crescens and Titus, have gone their own way, presumably for a legitimate reason. But Paul is alone, and in his aloneness, he's honest about the difficulties. And he asks Timothy to come to him, bringing his cloak bringing some books and parchments, things that he needs. But it seems that Paul is longing not just for those things, but for Timothy himself. Paul is in a dark place. And so we are able to look at this passage and say, how does he find hope in this dark place? Three things I believe we see as we look at the passage. Uh, First of all, we see that... um, Paul's understanding of Jesus as king changes the way he views his own circumstances. He sees a purpose in his own suffering because Jesus is king. So we'll first see purpose. Secondly, we'll see the very real presence of Jesus with him. God's power is at work with Paul in the midst of his struggles. But finally, we'll see that Paul also sees the importance of human friends to help him 
in the dark, dark places. So, uh, first of all, uh, what, what are the things that give us encouragement? First of all, we see uh, uh, this new changing uh, perspective for Paul. Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily like changing in this passage, but it's changing from what we would typically do when we're suffering or when we're facing something difficult. It's tempting for us to believe if Jesus is the king, and if Jesus, in, in the sort of most common New Testament way to speak of the power and authority of Jesus, is not to call him king, but to call him Lord. As you look at this passage, you see time and again the many ways that, uh, that Paul speaks of Jesus as being Lord. Lord Jesus. Um, some of these references, we're not sure if he's thinking specifically of Jesus or God more generally. Um, but in the first place, in verse 8, he speaks of a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also who love his appearing. It's clearly a reference to Jesus. So Paul sees his present suffering in light of Jesus' kingly power and authority. He sees it in light of the hope of Jesus' return. But he also understands that his suffering can be part of a larger purpose. We see that a little bit later. He has particular insight in a certain situation. He has to give a defense for himself, perhaps relating to Alexander the coppersmith. Um, in verse uh, 17, it says, The Lord strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So Paul understood that, that through his suffering and difficulty, God was working out a purpose. Now, this is a specific thing. It's not exactly the same for all of us, probably not even that similar to, to many of us, that we can say, um, right now I see how my suffering is being used to make Jesus known. Sometimes it's hard to make that connection. But we are told in the Bible that all suffering for Christians fits into our discipleship, that God is able to use it. That doesn't give us the final answers on why we suffer, why things are hard, and why we face difficulties. But we simply are promised, as Paul told the, the Romans in his uh, famous letter to the Romans, that God is able to work for good in all things. We have a different perspective on our suffering because Jesus is king and he is able to work. I think it's important that we keep reminding ourselves of this because there is a, a certain line of teaching that says if Jesus is king, then you won't have to suffer. And that can sound very attractive to us when we hear it, especially if we're doing well. And we can think, well, if I say the right prayer or do the right thing or, or get baptized the right way or get connected to the right church, then I'm, I won't have to suffer. But I think this passage, as much as anything else in the Bible, shows us how clearly untrue that is. It simply wasn't true for Paul, was it? I mean, he suffered immensely. In many ways, he suffered particularly because he was following Jesus. He was suffering because of his mission and, his, and the things that he was doing. In fact, Jesus not only never promises we will avoid suffering if we follow him, he says the exact opposite. In the Gospel of John, he tells his followers uh, on the night he was betrayed, uh, he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He didn't say to them, listen, now that I'm going up to rule and reign in heaven, you won't have any problems. Instead, he said, if you're my followers, you will, you will struggle. Sometimes with suffering that's so clearly tied to our Christian life and faith, and sometimes the connections are not plainly made. 
And yet we can know for sure that all suffering is part of our discipleship and that God is at work in it. Second thing we see when we look at the passage is that not only does it change our, our perspective on what's happening, but that, that Jesus is present with us. One of the great statements in the New Testament about the authority of Jesus comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus commissions his followers to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you all go out and make disciples of all nations. In right following that command, the promise of his power, the command for our mission, he promises, he said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus promises to be with us. Now, Jesus uh, was raised from the dead with a real body. He is ruling and reigning. He is uh, in heaven and we wait for his return. But having been seated at the right hand of the Father, he pours out his Holy Spirit on the church. This is traced throughout the Bible, the story of Pentecost and the beginning of Acts. Now the Holy Spirit with the church is the agent of Jesus. And so we can speak of Jesus being with us because the Holy Spirit is with God's people as we gather together and as we disperse into ministry. This passage is a window into Paul's view of his world. He's not explicitly teaching us things about the, the kingship of Jesus, not much, but he's writing about very practical things. But in the midst of it, it's absolutely saturated with his conviction that Jesus is king and that he is working, presently active in Paul's circumstances and in, in, in his situation. And that changes everything for Paul. That completely uh, alters the way that, that he is uh, dealing with his circumstances. Uh, let's look at, at some of the ways that, that Paul sees Jesus at work. The first we already read. It's a reference to... Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how this happened. Um, the sermon from our service last week was here. I picked it up and I started to look at last week's sermon. Okay, I'll flip this over. Where did the wise men get? I couldn't figure out how the wise men suddenly showed up. I thought it was uh, the wrong sermon on the podium in front of me. So, what did Paul say? First thing that, that uh, we reckon, recognize already that, that Paul said um, is that Jesus has a crown of righteousness that he will reward. He looks forward to a future hope. But Paul also sees Jesus actively at work in the midst of his circumstances right now. Even as Paul is walking in the, sort of the shadow of his own looming death, he sees Jesus actively at work in the circumstances um, around, around him. So what, what are some of the ways that, that we see it? Well, first of all, he recognizes he doesn't have to avenge himself on Alexander the coppersmith. He says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The reason that uh, Christians are called to love their enemies is they entrust justice and judgment to God. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He says, I, I don't have to try to control Alexander the coppersmith or get back at him. The Lord will deal with him. And it may be that the, like some enemies of the cross, like Paul was himself, Alexander would be led to repent and come to faith. But if he doesn't, he will face Jesus as judge. 
and justice will be meted out. And this is the basis for Paul um, uh, praying and loving for and loving his, his enemies. So he has a belief that Jesus is able to bring justice actively uh, in, into the world. Um, he, go, he then goes on to talk about the way in which Jesus uh, is present with him. And he talks about at his first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted, deserted me, may it not be charged against them. Sort of a poignant scene, isn't it? You think of the burdens that Paul carries for the church, and we don't know the circumstances, but there are many, many times where Paul would be brought in and he would have to give some testimony in, the, in, in a sense the fate of the church in that region would be hanging on his testimony. Incredible burden that Paul would bear for others. And as he came into this courtroom to give a, a first defense in, in, uh, in, in some sort of uh, civic authority, it would seem. We can imagine Paul perhaps taking a glance over his shoulder behind him, wondering who's here with me. And as he looks back, he realizes no one has come in with him. He will stand alone. It's a dark place. And yet, yet, even as he acknowledges that and the difficulty of it, verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's just a, a big sort of ball of salvation there that the Paul throws out as he reflects on his circumstances. Let me just tease, a, tease out a few parts of it. First of all, Paul knows that sometimes God can rescue him from something very difficult. In, in some sense, that happened even here, where he was rescued from the lion's mouth. There are times in the Christian life where the power of Lord Jesus is present in our life, and God just spares us from a difficulty. Have you had that experience where even maybe driving on the road and something happens and your, your car spins and you, and, and you stop and you realize that could have been awful? Thanks God for what he spared us from. God will, on many occasions, just absolutely bring us through and around and out of something so difficult. And, and we'll say, I don't know how that happened. God, but God, it was as if God rescued him from the lion's mouth. And there's another very different thing happening here. There's sort of maybe aspects of both of them. Paul didn't entirely get out of his circumstance. In fact, rather than being removed from it, at least in the beginning, he said, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. There may be a combination of these things happening, but to think in these categories, there are also times in our lives where rather than spare us from something so incredibly difficult, God chooses to strengthen us in it. The reality of the Christian life is God doesn't spare us from all difficulties and hardships. And that many of us can look at our life and give testimony to the fact that in the aloneness of our darkness, God didn't instantly pluck us out, but he met us in that spot and strengthened us. Is God doing that for you now? Perhaps it seems as if your prayers haven't been answered. As if the difficult circumstance you're in just has not resolved and yet God is present. The Lord is present strengthening you in the midst of it strengthening you to walk through it. 
Sometimes God shows salvation by pulling us out and sometimes he shows his salvation by strengthening us in the difficulty. Finally, Paul understands that above and beyond it all, death will come for all of us. That's the one thing we can be certain of. Just as it did come for Paul, we don't know exactly when or where, but the time of his departure was near and Paul died. But that too is within the purview of the salvation of Jesus. He says, not only does, does God rescue him, the Lord will rescue me, but he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul has a vision of the authority and power of Jesus, that Jesus can not only bring us out of problems and strengthen us through problems, but he can bring us through death itself into his heavenly kingdom. And all of that is sort of this ball of salvation I'm talking about. But you see the different aspects of it. Paul is not free from suffering, but the power of God is present in all of these ways in the midst of his suffering. Third and final thing we want to look at tonight, there was a little bit of a surprise. Or it could be a surprise if you were just following along with those various themes. We've noticed in this passage already how incredibly unreliable the humans in Paul's life are. Let me modify that differently. It's really a window into seeing how incredible, how incredibly unreliable we all as humans can be. He was deserted again and again, just as Jesus was deserted by his followers. Just as you and I will be at times disappointed by the people around us. Paul was deeply harmed by one human, Alexander the coppersmith. He was deserted by others. He was disappointed by others. We could imagine at this point in his life, as, as he moves to the end, as he anticipates the time of his departure, we could anticipate that maybe the Apostle Paul would be just done with people in general. The Lord stood by him. I mean, we might not blame him if at this point in his life he were to say, you know what, I'm, I'm Timothy, just be fine where you are. I'm sick of waiting on people. The Lord is going to help me. He does not say that. In fact, one of the features that stands out so much in this passage is that how even here at this point, at this time, after all that's happened, Paul's life is so deeply intertwined with others. It just, he just lists people. They seem to just roll off his tongue. Oh, so-and-so's here and so-and-so's there. These connections, the web of ministry that Paul is involved in. He knows who is where and what they're doing. And as he closes, he thinks of Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus and of Erastus and Trophimus. Ibelus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia all send their greetings Paul is still absolutely saturated in relationships. And the moment that seems to me to be so touching is his insistence that Timothy come. As the, the darkness of his own impending death seems to set in, as the disappointments of abandonment, as the unjust opposition from those around him, as all these are burdened on him, Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. And again, later on, do your best to come before winter. Paul knew the value of people. 
Even though Jesus is king and Jesus himself will stand by Paul when everyone else leaves him, Paul knows that Jesus has great plans for his church, weak and broken as we often are, and that his intention is to make himself known through the relationships of his church. Paul knows that God's plan A still is to work through other humans like Timothy, that God chooses to reveal himself in the people around us. Paul's ministry was one of being poured out for others, of giving himself for others because of love, but it was also one in which he depended on others. The very few letters that Paul doesn't close by asking for prayer, even from the people he's teaching. But here I think we see not, not only in his uh, request for Timothy, uh, but also in his request for, for Mark, uh, a touching, closing aspect of his life. This Mark that Paul asks Timothy to bring with him, uh, we don't know him by name, but we know that earlier in the book of, uh, uh, the book of Acts, a young man named Mark had gone with Paul on a missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas together. And when uh, Mark had uh, perhaps gotten homesick or faced difficulties that were too big, he abandoned the trip. And the next time they went out, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him, and Paul says, no way. In fact, the dispute was so deep that Barnabas and Paul went their different directions because of Mark. We don't know for sure if it's the same Mark, but it is an interesting feature that he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me in ministry. This Was it perhaps the same man who previously had caused division with his unfaithfulness, now had grown and demonstrated the ability to minister even for and with Paul? Let me close with a question for you. Couple questions. Do you know Jesus as King in the midst of your darkness? Do you know his faithfulness, his care, his love, his power to care for you in the midst of your circumstances? But let me urge you, as important as it is, is to know that, not to simply stop there and think that your Christian life is going to be you and Jesus together and alone. It wasn't for Paul, and that's not how Jesus intended any of us to live. Whether difficult as it may be, disappointing as humans often are, Jesus calls us back again and again into the real fellowship of his church where we know and are known. Who do you need to ask for help from? Even the Apostle Paul asked for help. How in your life do you perhaps need to ask someone to help you, to come, to bring something you can't have on your own, to pray for you and with you, to be a living incarnational testimony of God's love and care? And finally, as you think about your lives, the people that you bump into, the people in your neighborhood, who is God calling you to care for in this season? Are there people around you perhaps walking in darkness? We go with confidence because we go in the power of the Lord Jesus. 
knowing that he's able to minister above and beyond all that we can do. Sometimes all we can do is show up and pray for and with others. But we are called to show up. As the, uh, perhaps the days are gradually getting brighter, but the dreariness of the season really sets in as the holidays end. Is it possible that there are people around you, perhaps members of our church, perhaps those in your family or in your neighborhood for whom the darkness is growing, not just literally, but figuratively? Is there perhaps a request unspoken, not yet verbalized from those around you that they might be saying, would you come before winter? Is God calling you to reach out, enter in and engage before it's too late to be the ministry of Jesus and his love and mercy to those around us in his power. Let's close in prayer.